Hello, Lakeview family, and welcome to this seventh and final edition of The Heart of Judgment, where we are going to be wrapping up our study of the book of Micah with the seventh chapter of Micah. And and in chapter seven, we're going to see Micah responding to everything that he has just heard, responding to the corruption in the sin of the people that God has been calling out responding to the judgment that God is bringing in response to their sin, responding to the hope and the promise that God has given for redemption after that judgment. And and when we go to respond to things today, I I think this is kind of how I think it feels today, that you've got to pick a response. You've got to pick a side. Just just think of any of the the COVID-19 topics that might come up. Whether it's... um, Schools going back and the options that people are being offered, whether it's the Saints not going to have any fans in the stadium, um, whether it's uh, the, the wearing masks or, or hearing about like the sheriff in Florida who forbid his deputies from wearing masks. Right? Anytime you, you read an article or hear someone talking about one of these topics, it feels like You've got to decide. Are, are you with them and you're, you're angry and you're outraged or you're on board with the plan that's being presented? Or are you skeptical? Or are you kind of opposed and critical of what you've just heard? I think a helpful contrast to that sort of binary response that, that we tend to feel like we need to have was, was Ben Watson's response to the grand jury decision not to indict the officer who shot Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. If you read the the Facebook post that Ben Watson put out, or or the book that actually he wrote afterwards expanding on that post, what you see is is he gave a range of responses. He he said a a number of things. He, He said things like, I'm angry, and he explained why he was angry. But he said, I'm fearful, and explained that. He said, I'm sad. And he explained that, I'm confused, I'm hopeless. But he also said, I'm hopeful. And he explained why he was both hopeless and hopeful. He said, I'm discouraged and I'm encouraged. And in all of it, he's not only giving a range of responses, but he's also locating his responses and the moment that he's living through in the plan that God has revealed. Trying to understand his moment in light of the larger story that God is telling. And when Micah goes to respond to everything that he's just heard in the first six chapters of this book, his response is going to be more like Ben Watson's response. He's going to give us a range of responses, not just one thing. And then he's going to be locating his response and the way he's feeling and the situation he finds himself in, in the bigger picture that God has revealed. And what Micah's doing is he's modeling the ideal response for the people of Israel. He's sort of speaking as the the ideal Israelite or or for the nation as a whole, saying this is how we should respond to what we just heard. Now, as as we read this, we don't live in Micah's day, so our, our response isn't exactly the same, but we can still learn from the way that Micah is responding here because we're living in a situation um, all the time that that has similarities to what Micah is dealing with. We are living through an experience of desolation, just living in a fallen world. There are places and things and situations that feel like a curse. They feel desolate. 
We are waiting for God to fulfill his promises for the latter days, dealing with the problems of now, waiting for the hope of later. Um, and, and we're relating to the same God that Micah is relating to. So we can learn from the way that he responds, the range of responses that he gives, the way he locates himself in God's larger story, how we can respond to our own situations as we go um, to relate to God and the world around us. So let's jump into this. The, the first thing Micah is going to say is simply, I'm sad. Right, the, the first words out of his mouth after he hears the desolation and judgment God has promised in chapter 6 is, woe is me. So let's, let's start. Verse 1, woe is me, for I have become as when the fruit, summer fruit has been gathered. As when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. This is Micah's response to the desolation and judgment that God has given in chapter 6. He says that, that he, it's like he's totally barren, like a field picked clean, like a vineyard with no grapes. Right? If, if you're not a farmer and can't imagine what that would look like, just imagine um, the, the bag of grapes you buy from the store once you've eaten all the grapes off it and all that's left is the stem with nothing. That's what Micah is saying. That's what, it, that's what we're like. That's what it feels like. I'm barren. There's no good here. And the barrenness that Micah feels is a mirror to the barrenness of the city and the place and the people that he's living among. There's no good to be found anywhere. He's looking out at the city of Jerusalem and he's picturing it as a city full of blood and corruption. And, and this is pulling on ideas we've seen in, in the judgments of chapter 2 and 3. Right here he says, everyone lies in wait for blood. They're hunting each other with nets. And you remember Micah 2 where God said that the people are plotting on their beds how to take and steal and abuse their power to, to get the land or the houses or the possession of people around them. You remember Micah 3.10 where he says that, that the rulers have built Zion with blood. And he gives a special emphasis here on the corruption of the prince and judges as we've seen throughout the book. You, you remember the rulers who were condemned in chapter 3. Those who were supposed to protect the people and give them justice are pictured as butchers. Who are skinning them and boiling them. Just taking from them whatever they can get. 
And, and this is what Mike is saying. He's saying, looking at Jerusalem and seeing the blood with which it was built, the rot and corruption growing in every building. And he says, the right response to what God has said about us is to declare, we are empty. We are barren. And then he sees it getting worse. In verse 4, he says, the day of watchmen has come. The, the prophets like Micah and Isaiah and Hosea who are declaring, judgment is coming on us for what has what, what's wrong with us, the corruption that we have. And that corruption is going to take full bloom. Right? He pictures that it's not just going to be the leaders who are corrupt, but everyone. Right? You're, you're not only going to not be able to trust the, the leader of your city, but you're not going to be able to trust your neighbor. You're not going to be able to trust your friend or even your wife or your children. It's not only the threat of foreign invasion out there or the corruption that you have, but, but everyone, this is going to happen among every person. And if you imagine, when, when the pressure comes on, when the invasion comes and, and Assyria or really Babylon comes and invades the city, can you imagine what's going to come out of people in that moment? Right, imagine living in places like France occupied by Nazi Germany or, or Scotland or Ireland when the English kings would come and, and oppress and rule over them. If you've seen Braveheart, you get kind of a picture of what that setting would feel like. And we celebrate stories of where that brings out the best in people and good people stand up and, and do what's right. But, but the reality is a lot of times pressure like that brings out the worst in people too. Right? It shows what's really inside of you, how you respond to feeling desperate, feeling like everything's being taken away from you. And how do you imagine that this city full of corruption and oppression and selfishness and abandoning God, how do you think they're going to respond in that day? You're not going to be able to trust anyone. That's what Micah is saying. I think something that's notable here about Micah's lamentation that's really what this is. It's a lamentation. Micah is expressing sorrow just all by itself. He doesn't feel any need to bring into this anger at the people around them or, or a plan for how to fix it. That's what we want to do, right? When we feel sad about something, we feel the loss or barren. Just imagine how people respond to, to coronavirus and the loss of normal patterns of life. I don't hear a lot of people just say, man, I'm just so sad at, at how this moment feels. I've heard a few people say that, but, but mostly I hear people trying to figure out who to blame or figure out what we got to do. Right, they're covering over the sadness with, with a, trying to feel like they're in control or ignoring the way that they're feeling. And Micah doesn't do that. He has the strength to express the pain of this moment all on its own. It's a vulnerable thing to do just to say, this hurts me. I don't like this. This is, this is sad. The brokenness around me is so terrible, period. And Micah can do that. The difference between lamentation and despair is that, that lamentation has a strength in it. Right? Despair is when sorrow is crushing you and, and, and there's nothing left. Lamentation is when you're expressing sorrow and have the strength to do that well. And Micah has strength to truly lament here because he also has hope. Alongside of his expression that I'm sad, I'm lamenting this moment, he's also about to say, but I'm also hopeful. 
And when you see the way that Micah expresses his hope, you're going to see that he is listened to. He's understood the unusual path that the hope God is giving him is going to take. Pick this up in verse 7. He says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He shall bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. This passage right here is one of the reasons I was excited to study Micah in the first place. I wanted to understand how this man knew that bearing the indignation of the Lord would lead to the vindication of the Lord. That's not an obvious thought. And and notice here what Micah is hoping for. Micah has hope to fall. Because he knows he will rise again. Micah has hope to sit in darkness. Because he knows the Lord will be his light. He has hope even to bear the indignation of the Lord. Because he knows that the judgment on the people is going to lead to judgment for, on behalf of the people. Do we know what this means? Do we know what it means to wait on the Lord like this? Think of that song that we sing. On Sunday mornings, we'll sing Out of the Depths. And and the chorus of that song goes like this. It says, So more than watchmen for the morning, I will wait for you, my God. When my fears come with no warning in your word, I'll put my trust. When the harvest time is over and I still see no fruit, I will wait. I will wait for you. I'm pretty sure this song is based on a psalm, but, but the words in it have a lot of similarity to Micah 7. When, when you sing this song, what do you imagine waiting is going to be like? Do you imagine waiting for the Lord is going to feel like there's, there's this threat of, of danger coming and, and you're getting closer to the edge and then right before the edge, God is going to save you and prevent that thing from happening? Or or do you imagine that waiting on the Lord might look like you going all the way over that edge? You falling all the way to the bottom and hitting and sitting in darkness. And that's where you wait for the Lord. That's where your hope that you will rise and light will come and you will be vindicated is going to come out of that darkness. Because when Mike is writing this, he's expecting the latter. He knows that the desolation promised in chapter 6 is coming. And that rescue is only going to be on the other side of that. Right? The next several decades of Israel's existence are going to be desolation and futility until a final desolation comes. That's going to be all of Micah's life. He's not going to see the redemption in his lifetime. He has, says he has hope to sit in darkness because he knows he's going to. Do we have hope for that kind of waiting? Do we know how to wait for the God who's not afraid to send us all the way into darkness and then create light there? Do we trust the God who defeated death by dying? 
If we're going to trust a God like that, if we're going to walk with a God into darkness, over the edge of the cliff, we have to have a big picture, a deep trust in the promises that he's made and that those promises are going to be worth the difficulty and desolation of the current moment. And that's the next thing that Micah turns our eyes to. The next thing that Micah says in this chapter is that I'm expectant. Right? And, and, and the way I'm, I'm distinguishing hope and expectation here is that I think of hope as what you have in the darkness. But expectation is the picture that you have of the hope that's coming, of the light, of the goodness, of the promises being fulfilled. And Micah here is, is imagining and making much of the reality of what God has promised. So starting in verse 10, he says, Then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, will come, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from the Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Just as Micah's lamentation was referencing the judgment of corruption we saw in chapters 2 and 3, so his imagining of the promises of God is referencing the the promises we heard in chapters 4 and 5. Right When he says, then my enemy will see... He's, he's flipping the idea in Micah 4.11 that, that Israel is surrounded by enemies who want to see her made desolate. They want to look upon Israel and they're threatening in their leering. And now he's saying, oh, they will see. They will see and it will be them in that day who is trampled down, not us. When, you, when he talks of building walls and expanding boundaries, you think of Micah 4, 3, when, when God's mountain is lifted high and he judges and rules over not just Israel, but many peoples. When he pictures Egypt and Assyria coming to the Lord, you remember Micah 4, 2, when many nations are promised to be coming to the Lord to learn his ways. And when he pictures the desolation of the earth, you remember the final promise in Micah 5, 15, when he promises that in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. And, and as Micah is, is going through these promises, he's not just reciting the words that God said in those passages. He's expanding on and imagining what that day is going to be like. He's applying those themes to the specifics of his own situation, right? When he imagines Egypt and Assyria as the ones coming to God, there's, there's nothing all that significant in history or even in the biblical narrative about the nations of Egypt and Assyria, Remember, Assyria is not even a nation anymore. But, but he's saying he picks those two because they're the big powers of his day. And he's imagining what's it going to be like when all nations are coming to Israel. It's, it's going to be like these big nations, Assyria, who's threatening everything. Egypt, the hope of what we might think is going to save us. Those nations are going to come to the Lord. Right? It's one thing just to know the promises and be able to recite them. 
but, but we need to feel the weight of them and apply them. What, what does that mean? What would it look like in our current situation? It's one thing just to know that Philippians 2.10 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But it's another thing to imagine Donald Trump's knee bowing. Drew Brees, or pick your favorite football player or celebrity's knee bowing. Jeff Bezos, or the CEO of some other giant company, their knee bowing at the name of Christ. The Shah of Iran, the president of China. Imagine their knees bowing, and you understand something about this promise that you don't get if you just know the words and the reference. You feel the weight that these promises are supposed to carry as you imagine what that will look like. What it would mean for your current situation for that to come true. And you feel the burden to pray, God, do what you promised. That's where Micah goes next. The next thing he does is teach us to pray, I am burdened. I want to see this happen. And he turns to the Lord and says, God, do what you promised. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. These verses are kind of like we're reading Micah's prayer journal. This is what he prayed to God. He starts off the first verse praying God's promises back to him. Shepherd your people. Send the shepherd ruler that you promised in chapter 5. Bring your people to the good land that you promised. He pictures a, a garden and he mentions Bashan and Gilead, which were ideal grazing lands for a flock of sheep. He's saying, God, give them the peace and the security you promised us in chapter 5. Give us the prosperity and that everyone would live in security with a vine and in his own place that you promised in chapter 4. And then in verse 16, it's like he records what he heard from God during his prayer. I know I said last week that chapter 6 is the last time God was going to speak. And I, I was almost right. Um, this is sort of like, like Micah was praying and this is what God said to him. The impression he gave him to say, that I will do what I promised. And when I fulfill my promises, it's going to be just as spectacular as the days of Egypt when I sent 10 plagues to bring you out of the land and every nation saw my power. That's what it's going to be like. And then Micah meditates and again imagines what that will look like. That the nations around right now who feel threatening and strong, they're going to be ashamed of their might. That doesn't just mean they're going to be ashamed because they have might. It means uh, they're going to be ashamed the same way I would be ashamed if I went to go work out at a powerlifting gym or tried to run with a bunch of marathon runners, right? I'm, I'm ashamed of my might because it's not very mighty. <laughs> um, they're no longer going to be mocking. They're going to put their hand over their mouth. They'll be struck dumb. They won't be able to hear. It's almost like their ears are ringing in shock at what they've just heard. 
They'll be utterly humiliated and afraid, face down, face in the dirt, on their bellies. What a day it's going to be when that looks like, when every knee bows, when every nation recognizes the greatness of our God and what he has done. And, and we can learn from this prayer because we, we are still waiting to see this. Right? There's a sense in which God has done the marvels, at least in part. Right? Christ has defeated death. He is reigning on high, but every knee has not yet bowed. Not everyone has recognized the greatness of what God has done. And so we are waiting to see that. And we can pray just like Micah prays in these verses. God, do what you promised in the midst of the desolation that we're experiencing right now. Bring your promises. Let everyone recognize the glory and goodness of our God. Let that be clear for all to see. And that's the final thing that Micah focuses our eyes on. Is the glory of our God. The last thing Micah teaches us to say is simply, I'm in awe of this God who just spoke. And this awe, the glory of our God, is what's going to hold everything together that we just read. All the range of responses, the, the confidence in our hope, they all rest in the glory of this God. It's the context in which we need to place everything that we have heard, all of our responses. This is what Micah says. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is what we need to recite and to remind ourselves as we walk through darkness and wait for the Lord. And what a switch this passage is from the opening lines of Micah 1 where God was coming down in fiery judgment, melting mountains and coming against his people. And now Micah concludes saying, and this same God delights in everlasting, steadfast love. He's going to show compassion and forgiveness to his people. And, and hope, as, you, as we've gone through Micah, that, that this has helped you hold those two things together. That the God who judges and brings justice is the same God who forgives and shows mercy. And we need to hold that. We need to remember that those two are always true. That God will not acquit the guilty and he delights in steadfast love. Both of those are true. And if we can remember that and we can hold on to that and keep that picture before us, it will orient us as we follow God through unexpected paths. Like Micah is following this judgment to vindication that doesn't make sense in the natural it only makes sense when you see that this is what our god is like that this all holds together in him and this helps us to avoid simplistic or simple responses this is why we can do more than just say one thing why we don't have to just look at the world and condemn it for all of its sins because god does that but he doesn't only do that 
And while we also don't look at people's lives following Christ, ourselves or others, and expect that they're just going to walk through blessing and goodness all of their days because God does that, but he doesn't only do that. And we need to hold this picture of God in our head. Hold the realities, the complex unity of what God is like. I'm not asking you to understand it or get your head all the way around how those two things fit together in one being. It's uh, any more than I'm going to ask you to count to infinity. But we need to remember that these two go together so that when we walk off the cliff, when that's what your life feels like, you know there's still hope at the bottom because this is still within the plan that God has, the way that he leads his people. We need to hold this picture before us. And that's why Micah ends here. It's where we always need to end. When we go to respond to anything that we're facing with a picture of the glory of our God who holds justice and love together. Thanks for walking with us through this series and our um, now increasingly and probably overly virtual worlds. Um, I, I hope you've been blessed by it. Um, stay tuned. We're going to try to have some information in the next few weeks about where we're going to be going after this series. Um, probably likely be another online teaching just given the, the way that the world is going. We may have some other options for that as well. So stay tuned. Um, I hope you'll join us for the next series.